Well, if you have your Bible with you, you want to find the little book of Jonah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, almost to the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of Jonah this morning. It's our second to last week in our series, More Than a Story. So we've talked through last week, Daniel in the lion's den. We've talked about Isaac and the ram. We've talked about Eve and the snake, David and the giant. Today we talk about Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the big fish. So Jonah... Uh, is a very short book. Um, And then next week, uh, we'll talk through Jesus and the cross and kind of thread all these little stories together as you can see why these stories that you've heard about, why these stories that even if you've never been in church before, you've heard these stories, why are these precious to us Christians and what do they mean? What do they teach us about our God? What do they reveal uh, to us about ourselves? And so I want to not... I'm not going to read the whole book of Jonah to you. It is not that long, but it's a little bit uh, prohibitive this morning to go through every word of it with you. And I'm going to point out a couple things in it, but I want to summarize the story for you for those who may not remember all the details of the book of Jonah. But it's about uh, one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite people in history, this man Jonah. And the reason I love this book is it's been really good to my heart. And at some point, we'll probably spend a little bit more time on this, but Jonah is the story of a far from perfect prophet. So far from perfect. He just keeps making mistakes. Things that you would assume that a prophet who's hearing directly from God would not make. And yet he's so far from perfect. And I relate in every sense as a, as a man who's a far from perfect father and a far from perfect husband and a far from perfect pastor who leads a far from perfect family and works at a far from perfect church. Like this Jonah story, I see so much of my story in it and so much of it is convicting. And if I'm not careful when I read the book of Jonah, when you hear it and I see myself In it, I end up feeling maybe a little bit of condemnation saying I make mistakes like that too. And the story of Jonah though is not one of shame and guilt and pointing out how far from perfect you are, but it's a great book to remind us, yes, you're far from perfect, but you've been given a perfect prophet in Christ that you have a desperate need for. And you, like Jonah, make obvious mistakes. Like you have heard from the Lord some obvious things and have still gone in the opposite direction. And this story this morning is one not of condemnation, but of conviction to say we all need Jesus, all of us. And God is always doing something in our lives. And I pray that this morning and hearing the the story of Jonah, what he does in your life is remind you how much you need him and then remind you how available he is to you and how near and how close. The story of Jonah, it's kind of fast paced. It's four very short chapters, but it starts with a man named Jonah who's told by God what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to go to a city called Nineveh and call them to repentance, call them to change. And he refuses. He says instead he he buys a ticket on a ship to Tarshish and says he wants to go in the opposite direction. So he hears from God go this way and he decides to go this way. And he gets on that boat and that boat encounters a storm and a storm so bad that the sailors on the boat determine this has to be of divine proportions. God must be upset with somebody on this boat. And so they determine that that person that God is upset with is Jonah. And they ask him, what did you do to upset God that we're all going to die? 
And he tells them, Jonah says, if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop and y'all will be safe. And at first they refuse to do that and then he's insistent. And these men who do not love God, who are obvious kind of superstitious men, throw Jonah overboard and the storm instantly stops. And it says in verse 16 of chapter one, after they throw Jonah overboard, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And you get the first glimpse in verse 16 of one of the themes of Jonah, which is that this Jewish prophet is imperfect, but that God's love is for all people everywhere. And these Gentile superstitious unbelievers, when they witness the power of God, they instantly turn their lives over to him. And it says, I love that word, they fear him exceedingly. Which again, man, if you're writing my obituary one day, which I hope you never have to, I mean, I hope I outlive all of you suckers, but if you get to, and you wrote, man, Adam, Adam loved his wife exceedingly or loved his family exceedingly or loved his God exceedingly, gosh, that's the kind of life I want to live. And this is the fear of the Lord they experienced exceedingly. And then verse 17 uh, you would think this whole story is about a whale from how often we heard it when we were kids, but this story, it just has this fish in it basically twice, once to swallow and once to throw up. But here it is, he swallows Jonah, this great fish in verse 17. And then Jonah spends three days inside this fish. And in this moment, this is not Jonah's redemption yet. This is Jonah's rock bottom moment. This is the moment that many of you have experienced when your entire life has crumbled where you have nowhere left to turn. I mean, when you've been thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, and now you're being digested, you don't have a lot of hope. There's literally no light. And he's in there for three days. And what does he do? Hopefully the same thing you or I would do. He prays and he prays hard and he repents. And he says, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna do it different. He prays for those three days. And after those three days, he spit out on the shore by the fish. And God says, now you're going to Nineveh like I told you. And he goes. And it describes Nineveh as this huge city. It says in order to cross Nineveh, it would take you three days to walk across Nineveh. And it says, and, and Jonah goes in and he tells them, God's going to destroy y'all if you don't change. And it says and he walks in about a day or a day and a half. He walks into the city, but not throughout the whole city. So kind of has a little bit of a begrudging obedience even now. Like he, he goes in, he does what he's supposed to. And then he leaves the city and he goes and finds a place to kind of overlook the city because he's not only expecting but hoping that God will not forgive Nineveh, that his message will not be effective. He's hoping that these people who he does not believe deserve forgiveness will be wiped off the face of the planet. And so he finds a place to watch that happen. And it says, and the sun came up and it was kind of a grueling sun. And God gave him a plant that grew up that shaded Jonah and provided shade for him. And Jonah slept comfortably in that shade. And then the Lord sent an animal to destroy that plant and the plant withered. And again, just like we talked about last week, God is always doing something. And even in the plant growing and the plant being destroyed, God is teaching Jonah something. And Jonah gets angry, angry at God because the plant was destroyed. See, Nineveh repented, God relented, they got to live, and Jonah was upset that they weren't destroyed. 
And then when the plant grew up to shade him and it was destroyed, when the plant was destroyed, Jonah got upset. So you see what happened there is Jonah wants a group of people, there are not his people, to be destroyed. And it makes him angry that they get preserved. And then he wants the plant that keeps him comfortable to live. And he gets upset when that is destroyed. And then the book comes to a very abrupt conclusion, which is actually a verse we spent some time in at the beginning of this year. We'll review here in a second. But the very last verse of the book of Jonah says this. God's saying to Jonah about the fact, well, let's start in verse 10. He says, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And that's the end of the book. Shouldn't I love a city? There's a ton of cows there. The end. Like what a crazy end to the story. I wish there was a chapter five. There's not. This is the end. What do we do with that? We have Jonah, this far from perfect prophet, who at the end of the book is still far from perfect. He's more upset that he's lost his comfortable seating space. He's more upset that people didn't die. And he doesn't ever repent of that. It just ends. God says, and this is so cool, he says, I have compassion on this city. Why? Because it's full of people. We talked about that in my first sermon of this year, and I'll review a little bit of it here in a second. But the city's so full of people, and God loves people. And one of the things that's so obvious in the book of Jonah is that God is not a God of only the Jewish people. God redeems a ship full of superstitious sailors and then he redeems an entire city that's notorious for its sin. God is a lover of all his people. But Jonah was not. Jonah was full of prejudice. Jonah's heart did not despise, it despised the Ninevites. And what he liked instead more than them was his own comfort. You can probably see where my heart is starting to relate that where my heart has gone so many times is that my comfort becomes more important to me than other people's existence. I've seen that in my my life. I've seen it in my experience. I've seen it in my choices. Four things I wanna talk to you about today from the book of Jonah. And then I wanna review something. But four things, I wanna talk about two things we see of God in the book of Jonah and then two things we see in Jonah that are true of us. Two things we see that are true about God and then two things that are true of us. The first one that we see very clearly that's, that's true of our God is that you cannot run or hide from God and you cannot run from his purposes. You cannot run or hide from God and you cannot run from his purposes. If God wants something done, he doesn't have to fight us for it. Connor, I loved your story today. It was so great. I love the, the metaphor you used for your salvation, like a fish on the line that's fighting it. But like there's, there's no resisting. If God wants to save your heart, he did. Even as lost as you were, as rebellious as you were, he reels you in. That's such the perfect picture. That's Jonah's life. As Jonah's going, no, I don't, I don't want to go the way you want me to go. I'm going to go this way. And yet at the same time that God's purposes cannot be thwarted, your choices matter. 
Your choices do matter. He's given you instruction to say, here are choices that honor him and there are choices that do not. And he holds you responsible for your choices. That these two things are mutually true. You cannot trick God. You cannot trap God. You cannot run from God. And at the same time, you are responsible for the choices you make in your life. Those two things are held in tension throughout the entire scripture. God gets to do what he wants and he works everything, to, everything that happens. He works together for the good of those who love him. And at the same time, you are responsible for your choices. Why is this important? A couple things. I actually use Jonah all the time, especially when, when I'm counseling young men, especially when we're talking about decision making. Because people will come to me with a decision, and this is so frequent, I'm sure you guys have this too. In your home groups in your life, somebody will say, there's these two choices I have. Or maybe it's three choices or four, but they'll say, should I do this or should I do this? Should I take this job or stay in this job? Should we move here or should we stay here? Should we stay together or should we break up? Should we get a divorce or should we stay married? And they'll lay before me these decisions, much like you've been in maybe decisions you've had to make or help somebody else through. And they'll have these sometimes very weighty choices to make. And we often think of them almost like it's a Jonah choice. Should I, God has called me to Nineveh, but I don't want to go. So is it okay if I take a boat ticket to Tarshish? Or how do I know which one is right? And there's a couple scenarios that are worth walking through. This is why it's important to counsel through these things. Typically, most often, the choices that God gives us are between one thing in which I can serve and honor him and another thing in which I can serve and honor him. For instance, if you're deciding between should I go to uh, the University of Texas or Texas A&M, some of you may say there's a godly right choice there. But the truth is, there are godly people among whom you can serve in great churches and great ministry at either. And so while it could be, it is a decision we should take our time in and be wise in and consider all these things. This is not a Jonah decision. We're like, if you chose the wrong university, a fish will swallow you, okay? That is not the decision. The decision is between two good things. And the Lord has given you so much freedom, so much freedom to say between two good things that can honor him, you choose. In this job or this job? Well, can you serve God in this job? And can you serve God in this job? If the answer is yes to both, then guess what? You have great freedom. Great freedom and you can make the decision without regret going, will God strike me with lightning if I pick wrong right here? Will he send a fish to swallow me? We, there are great choices the Lord has given you freedom to make in honoring him. And then the other end of the spectrum, there are choices that are very, very obvious and easy to make if you know your Bible, if you know your God. There are choices that I wish we were better at making. Choices like, should I watch this thing that is full of smut and brutality, or should I do something worth my time? And yet so many of us would go, well, what's wrong with this? It's not a big deal. It's artful or it's entertaining. And we go, well, the Lord's made this choice obvious for me as a believer. I don't need to expose myself to this. Or should I run to this substance? Or should I run to this relationship that I know does not honor the Lord? Or should I walk in integrity? These choices should be, as Christians, easy for us. Because I know the Lord wants my heart. I'm going to pursue integrity in this. This is not a hard choice. These things are simpler. What church should I go to? What job should I keep? These things are simpler between should I walk into sin or should I not? 
And then there are other choices that are more difficult. But sometimes there's also Jonah choices. I know what God is asking me to do, not just to avoid, but he's asking me to do something. But in the other choice, there's my comfort and there's my convenience. And my comfort seems like a good thing. Doesn't God want me to be comfortable? Doesn't God want me to get the most out of life? Doesn't he want my joy? Say, yeah, God is all for joy. And he's promising you joy in obedience that doesn't necessarily come without suffering, doesn't necessarily come without loss of comfort. But you cannot run from God's overall plan, but you are responsible for your choices. Second thing we see about God is that God's grace is greater than our greatest sin. You might hear me talk about that first thing and say, well, I've messed up. I've made the wrong choices over and over again. I have known what God asked me to do and run the other way over and over again. Well, the story of Jonah is the story of an entire city who did not care what God said and then repented and the Lord forgave them. A city that was notorious for sin, a city that was notorious for rebellion against God and God forgave them. It was the story of people on a ship that were so superstitious. They didn't know the Lord. And yet when they saw his power, they turned and were forgiven. The storm around them was calmed. God's mercy is greater than any sin you've got. God's mercy, it, it always outpaces your sin. And you see that in the way he loves these people. These are not his chosen Israelite people. These are the Ninevites. And even them he loves and he forgives. So who are we to think that only this class of people, only this country of people, only this race of people truly get it and God truly loves? And yet in this world full of prejudice, if we were truly living out the love that we see in our God, we would be lovers of all people, even the most obnoxious, even the most difficult, even the most foreign to us in every sense of the word. God is a lover of all people and his mercies exceed every difference. It's great to know that our God forgives better than I do. I probably like many of you, it's hard for me to forgive people for whom it's easier to hold a grudge against. It's, it's easy for me to, in my own internal sense of justice, refuse to forgive because they don't deserve it. Well, I don't know that the Ninevites deserved it. They didn't earn it. They just demonstrated true repentance, which we'll talk about in a moment. So those two things we see about God and Jonah that are really obvious, you can't run away from God's purposes and God's grace is greater than our greatest sin. And then two things we see in Jonah that I think are true and good for all of us. One is that uh, the first thing about us, the third point overall, is that God's call on your life is not always gonna be in your comfort zone. God's call on your life is not always going to be in your comfort zone. Now, I'm not big on the personality test. Some of you guys, Enneagram is like your daily devotional. You're like, okay, since I'm a four, what am I having for breakfast? You know, like I don't, I don't live that life, but I appreciate it. I get it. Some of y'all have your Myers-Briggs name tags and you're like, I'm an IOQ7. I don't know what the thing is, but y'all, some of y'all love these personality tests. I'm not against them, but what I am against is treating your personality like it's your permission to sin. So hear me in this, like God will sometimes have a call in your life that calls you out of what's comfortable. 
so that we don't get to look at our circumstance and go, well, since I'm a nine, I'm actually not expected to share my faith with that person or go visit them in the hospital or go serve that. Or I, I don't know what the numbers are. I've been told I'm a nine, okay? Which on a scale of one to 10, I think that's pretty good, all right? <laughs> so as a nine, thank you. Chels, maybe a 10, can I get, oh, Rain, give me a rim shot, thanks, Rain. Uh, as a nine, my propensity is like to avoid conflict and keep people happy. And just because it's accurate, okay. But as a nine, I could easily, if that's true about me, sinfully avoid things that are difficult and say, well, I'm not into conflict, so I'm not going to enter into that conversation. I'm not going to correct that person because they might be upset with me. And I see that propensity in me to do that. I'm conflict avoidant. Well, I don't get to go, God, you've asked me to do something, but I'm not comfortable with conflict, so I'm not going to do it. God's call on your life will call you out of what's comfortable. He says, Jonah, go to this city in Nineveh and share the message of the kingdom of God and repentance. And Jonah says, no, that's not really my thing. I'm actually going to go the other way. We have such a propensity in this current culture to say, I'm one of those people who, and then fill in the blank and make that's like a blanket statement that excuses us from whatever somebody wants us to do. Well, I'm just not one of those people who does that. There are some general and specific calls that God has on your life, including the one that all of us have to go and make disciples of all nations. And sometimes that's not gonna be the most comfortable thing. We live in a country that is increasingly opposed in the secular worldview aspect to what we believe. It's not going to be easy and get easier to be a Christian in the secular public sector. It's not easier now than ever to be a Christian counselor or a Christian lawyer or a Christian police officer. It's not easier, it's harder. It feels like we have a bias that other people see as prejudice and we're going, no, we have a truth and every belief system is a bias. Every belief system. Are we gonna have to evacuate again? Is this one of those things? Okay. If you were here last week at the 1.30, we all had to evacuate at one point. I think we're okay so far. I don't know what that was. Stephen, thank you. For those watching online, something just fell right off screen and it almost got me. It's not true. Just a little pastoral ad lib, everybody. You're welcome. That's free. That wasn't even in the notes. Okay. Man, I'm so far off now. Just reel it back in, right, Connor? Just reel it back in. What I was trying to say is that uh, we have a propensity in this generation to think that if it's not comfortable, then that must not be the Holy Spirit's call. Where do you read that in the Bible? That will say, if I don't feel a peace about it, and by peace about it, we mean it's convenient, then I don't do it. The Lord calls us to inconvenient things all the time. He calls us to be a light in the darkness. Light in the darkness does not mean always that people love the light. In fact, when Christ describes himself, he says, people loved darkness. They hated the light. And we see that in the story of Jonah, that we need to be as Christians, ready to be despised, ready to be rejected the same way our savior was. And then the last thing we see from Jonah is that reluctant repentance leads to begrudging behavior, but real repentance leads to cheerful change. Here's what I mean. Reluctant repentance. You see a man who's repenting, I believe, uh, 
He's an example of something that may be true of many of us is that we say we're sorry because we don't want to face the consequences. If you're in a fish's belly, you want out. So you say, I'll do whatever it takes to get out of my rock bottom position. But if it's reluctant, if it's not real repentance, if it's not sincere apology, if I don't actually care that I've made a mistake, actually care that I've offended a holy God, if it's just saying I'm sorry because I got busted, if it's just apologizing because I think I should, then the behavior that comes from that is begrudging as well. It's I'll do this because I think I'm supposed to, because I think I have to. But real repentance, actually saying I want to be forgiven of what I've done is what leads to actual joyful, cheerful change. What I want in my son's lives, what I want in my life as a far from perfect pastor is I want real, actual change. I want when I see sin in my life to see it put to death, not just put away, not just hidden, not just... Uh, pretended it didn't happen. I want real heart change. And Jonah's story is a story. It's a reminder that real repentance leads to cheerful heart change. Nineveh didn't just say, hey, God, we're sorry. They changed. And our God is in the business of changing hearts and lives. So for those for whom you want to come to know Christ, We're not just aiming for a behavioral modification. We're asking for life change. And for those of you who are seeking Christ, you've seen sins that you love continue to persist and you want them put to death. You don't even want to desire that sin anymore. We've been so far from perfect, but our God's mercy is so great that he sent a perfect prophet in our place that we might not stew and have a pity party over our own imperfections, but rather celebrate that in Christ we've been made new. I'm not who I was. That the old Adam, literally and spiritually, the old Adam doesn't live like that anymore. That's not who I am. Now, my very first sermon of the year, we did our resolution sermon on this last verse of Jonah. And if you weren't there for that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it. I feel like more than anything else I've preached at Eastside, it really distilled who we are and why we're here. Part of that message was just that Dallas, the city that we live in, is an easy city to pick on. It's it's very easy to pick on Dallas. We can all sit around and talk about how cool Austin is or how awesome it is to get to the mountains or to the ocean. And then we can easily talk about Dallas and go, man, there's no mountains. It's not cool. There's no ocean. There's, no, there's nothing here that we're like, oh, that's awesome, except that we can afford to live here. We've got good jobs and a great education. But let's not talk about that. There's all these problems here in Dallas. And we talked about in the first sermon of the year that when God looks at a city, he sees it different than his imperfect people. Imperfect Jonah looked at Nineveh and said, that city just needs to go away. That city should be wiped off the face of the planet. And God looks at the city and says, why wouldn't I have compassion on it? It's full of people. And I love people. And I want to remind us, because the sermon, the purpose of the sermon was our resolution sermon. It was, we're going to do this this year, Esau. Let's be about this. And we talked about being committed. We talked about being content. And we talked about being compassionate. And now that we're six months into 2021, I think it's a good chance for us to say, how's it going with our New Year's resolutions? Is your Peloton sitting in the closet? 
You know, is your gym membership, are you still going five days a week like you were in January? When we talked about loving the city of Dallas well, are we doing it? Do we have compassion? Literally, compassion means, think of it like the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ come, comes from with, to say with, like we will suffer with the people of this city. That where we see suffering, we will lessen the suffering by suffering alongside those who are suffering. If you have ever grieved, you know how the grief is relieved when you, have, when you get to share it with somebody you love and they're in it with you. When you're sick and in the hospital, it's, it's relief when somebody comes and sits with you. That's the idea of compassion. Do you have compassion on Dallas? When you look at the city, are you dying to get out of it? Or do you, like God, look at it and say, why wouldn't I have compassion? Why wouldn't I suffer with it? Why wouldn't I desire to put down roots and change things here for the better? Do we see nothing but problems or do we see opportunities for the gospel? Because I, I can tell you, I, like Jonah, I struggle the same way he did in chapter four here. I will choose my comfort over and over and over again. I see it. It's a propensity in me. I choose my comfort over compassion. I have an opportunity to suffer with somebody was the least I could do for them and get back to me being comfortable. I feel challenged by suffering. I feel challenged by the problems of the city. I don't know what to do all the time. It's much easier just to say, I'll just go home. I'll just be with the people I love and I'll just close the door and I'll just avoid it. But we're not gonna be a church that's in Dallas until we can afford to live somewhere else. We are not gonna be Eastside Community Church until we're somewhere in the suburbs. We're a church that's not gonna have one foot in the door and one foot out. We are here in the city of Dallas for a reason because God has called us here. You're here in this room and you're watching online today because God has called you to the same purpose, that we might be his instruments of compassion and commitment to a city that desperately needs it. And that sometimes and perhaps often we'd be willing to forsake our own convenience if it means obedience to the calling God has put on our lives. That we would seek to pursue the great commission instead of choosing to complain about things in our community that we would believe what our city truly, truly needs is Jesus Christ. The biggest problem our city faces is not traffic and it's not potholes. It's not local politics and it's not the economy. The biggest problem our city faces is that hundreds of thousands of people do not know Jesus Christ. So that's the mission of this church. That's the compassion we'll show and hopefully we'll do it with less begrudging submission than Jonah as we declare to our city, repent. Because the alternative to repentance in Christ is destruction. And while what comes with obedience to Christ might be discomfort, what also comes with it is the joyful obedience to a loving God and a loving King who's called you to something worth giving your life to. And he's worthy of your, all your trust and everything he's given you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your mercy is so great and so significant. And uh, the way you love people is so much better than the way I've been able to love people. And so, Lord, forgive me for that and forgive us for that. And call us into something greater. I pray, Lord, that your, uh, your grace would not only be something that I see applied to my life, but you'd give us the ability to apply it to others and to ourselves, that we'd be to 
easily um, shifting into your grace and easily believing it and that we'd see our burdens relieved by sharing them with one another. I pray, God, that the call on our life um, that may lead us out of our comfort would be something that we'd uh, be delighted to walk into as well. You free us from this American dream that says our convenience and our comfort and our luxury is the goal. And instead, Lord, uh, let us be the light in the dark place. We pray these things, God, for the sake of your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.